politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight once again for our liberty, our lives. And I don't even need to say property because our lives are more important. Our lives are really at stake here. That is why you need the best up-to-date information strategies. We've worked a lot on information this week. We'll focus a little bit more, hopefully, on strategies next week. And by the way, Daniel Horowitz back in the house today, Friday. We have so much left on the table, and it's frustrating because I have so many good guests, and I want to get to to their stuff, but then there's other issues I want to go over. So we're going to have Dr. Flavio Flavio Cartagiani, probably the, the best COVID doctor in the world, to talk about the largest ivermectin study ever done, which is the largest any COVID study ever done on any aspect of COVID. Um, you know, a city of 220,000 people, the p-value is through the roof. But as a good lead-up to our guest, I want to discuss a couple other news items through the prism of this fact-check business. See, a lot of people get confused. People need to understand everything I write now, within a day, Facebook's health feedback fact-checker has something written on it. And what people need to understand is that If you ignore common sense and lived experience and you focus like, okay, I'm trying to be sensitive here. What should I say? Um, An Amelia Amelia Bedelia hyper-literalist, obsessive scientific method person. It's nearly impossible to ever 100% affirmatively prove something or 100% disprove something. And I think you guys get my drift, what I mean with that. Right? But common sense will dictate that, yeah, this is not really working, or this seems to work very well. So when you're discussing masks and the vaccines and safety concerns and ivermectin, hydroxy, and various therapeutics, and remdesivir, you know, all the things. Basically, the game they play is they only have to get to a level one, but for us, even a level 99 is not good enough. So in other words, For us, even a level 99, to merely make something optional and make it available when it's proven safe no matter what so it couldn't hurt, it's not good enough. Because maybe there's a confounding factor that doesn't exactly prove, you know, whatever. You could have the preponderance of 70 different types of information, you know, retrospective studies, trials, um, you know, macroepidemiological, uh, you know, geographical ca- comparisons, mechanisms of action, on, you know, papers and understanding how it works. You could have the, the confluence of, of multiple things, but each one individually, by the way, gets subjected to a 100% scientific method, right? You could, you could have one factor that in itself is like, yeah, well, you could say maybe it's this, it's not really that, but tethered with the other things it actually fills in that missing piece of the puzzle and it's amazingly um helpful but that's not good enough whereas they could come in and mandate something kill a bunch of people make it the standard you know non-stop based on zero evidence it works so much evidence pointing negative but well it's not for sure it's possible it could work you know, you get the standard. That's basically what we're up against. 
And, uh, you know, I want to I develop this a little bit more as we go on today. But, you know, often you'll get, well, Daniel, you know, people are telling me this or that. Could you? And I'm like, dude, you, at the end of the day, you got to look at multiple continuity of observations. I don't have the time to produce all this information, spend half my time trying to save lives, which I don't even get paid for, all the emotionally draining things I'm dealing with the hospitals and everything, and have every last rebuttal to every last point. When it's like, you know, well, is it impossible that any type of mask under any type of circumstance could work? They're the ones asserting without evidence it definitely works. And if you don't wear one, you're killing people and we're going to force it onto your your face. You, you get what I'm saying? They don't have to prove anything. But that's that's the name of the game. Anyway, our first sponsor today, speaking of clarity of thought, clarity of vision, Better Spectacles is now offering authentic German-engineered Rodenstock eyewear. These are really the gold standard frames um, and and really lenses are very are the most important aspect because their GoSpecs lenses use an advanced algorithm for more than a million patients measuring 7,000 points in the eye. The result, more energy, no neck strain, the ability to help you see up to 40% better. My wife agrees that these are her best pair of glasses ever. Um, I like mine as well. Go to betterspectacles.com slash conservative to schedule a teleoptical appointment so you don't, you don't have to go in and wear a mask. They're offering my audience an introductory 61% off GoSpex lenses, uh, plus free handcrafted Rodenstock frames. Just visit betterspectacles.com slash conservative. So, you know, yesterday I wrote this bomb piece on N95s. You could see it's one of my top articles. Um, if you just click on my name at the blaze, you could see all my columns showing the danger of N95s. And let me just give you an example. When I write a piece, it's thorough. It's multiple different avenues and statements, and you'll learn so many new things, and it puts together a picture that the, the narrative you're being told is exactly the opposite. But what they'll do is they'll subject each individual item in a vacuum. Well, it could, could be this, could be this. So they're the ones that the perception in the world is that N95s are like your impervious suit of armor. Yeah, you're right. Cloth masks didn't work. Surgical masks didn't work. But but there's this per, there's this mystique around N95s, and the reality is, as you guys all know, if you're Ralph Barrick in his cute little lab there doing his gain of function research, developing his toys and his spike protein, I could tell you they're not wearing N95s. They're wearing you know some grade of hazmat suit, right? If you want to make sure you're protected, that you know it, it ain't gonna cut it. And I don't have time to go get into the ins and outs of, of the mask today. You know, maybe we'll we'll get into it more later this week. You could look at my piece. But my main point was this. What the evidence has shown, what our own government has written in all the state health department websites for years with regard to wildfires, is that masks don't work. And by the way, um, smoke particulates are at least 10 times larger than SARS-CoV-2 and, and flu virons. Right, smoke is about one micron. Uh, most ninety uh, percent of the SARS-CoV-2 uh, aerosols are 0.1, one tenth of a micron. So, um, you know, it's a hundred nanometers. So anyway, um, they're like they don't work. Don't wear them. 
They're like, the only thing that might work is a form-fitted, clamped N95, but those cause serious health issues, never put them on children, never wear them too long, yada, yada. Um, OSHA has a governing standard. You have to be fit-tested. You So it, you can't just even, like, use the clamp. That's not going to be enough. It has to be fit-tested. You have to go undergo medical evaluations um, and all sorts of things. So the point I tried to make is that it's a seesaw effect. To the extent you could even get to a point where possibly you might get some filtration efficacy doesn't mean you won't catch a, a sufficient um, infectious dose and still get sick from COVID. But possibly, conceivably, maybe it's not proven. We don't. There's no evidence it works against SARS-CoV-2. Is if it's a form-fitted, clamped N95, which by definition is not feasible. No one's going to do that. And it would be amazingly dangerous. And it's proven by our own government. And I just laid that all out there. And by definition, the only thing that might not cause problems are the loose, stupid things. So when you see people with the N95s, it's it's the funniest thing. It's like um, Pelosi handed them out. It's the ones with the Fruit Loops going around the ears. That thing hangs off your face like a schmata. It's actually worse than 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 the cloth mask. I, I cite in there the only study that looked at the um, filtration efficiency. By the way, filtration efficiency doesn't equal efficacy against SARS-CoV-2. It's just the stupid mannequin lab studies, not the real world where they just blow particles into it. Um, so, you know, cloth masks were 10%. Um, uh, surgical masks were 12%. And then KN95s that were fully clamped, fully probably were like 44. Even then, it was it was less than 50 but then when it wasn't when it was just worn like a like like the way everyone wears it it actually went down to 3 less than a cloth mask and there's reasons for that it has to do with the plosive energy it it pushes it around the the sides which are always opened um it's it's a complete joke okay you know i i i had this dirt bag um berate me in public where i live that he he's a doctor um about about the vaccine and everything and as he was berating me, he was he was doing you know what everyone does with the cloth mask. He had an N95 on. It kept slipping as he was talking, so he kept putting it on his face. And it was it was a, so he wore an N95, but it was one of those, you know, again not the clamped like hard case one. It's the the the, the cloth that you see. It, it's so loose it it moves. They look like a kissing Grammy, <laughs> like you know those fish. <laughs> and it looks it's the ones that look like like muzzles and um, birthday hats. <laughs> It's just, it's just insane. Um, and meanwhile, he has three shots and is berating me about the shots that he's wearing in N95, but that he's not even wearing it properly. And, and so it's a good, that, that was my main point. But I added in there that, look, even the form-fitted, you know, academically, it's not feasible, but even academically, if you wanted to be fit-tested and, and let's say you're putting in an IV to a guy that has SARS-CoV-2 and you don't want to get exposure, really you should be wearing the half what what do you call those things? The half respirators. Um, they they almost look like the Gulf War gas masks. At least something like that. Um, I forget it's like an R one hundred. I'm forgetting the name of it. Um, that's really what 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 you'd want. But you know, e- all my point was there's no evidence that even that works. And one of the points is I just put in there. 
um, a screenshot of an M3. It's one of the makers of an N95 mask. And they said, clearly, it doesn't stop aerosols, you know, whatever. And people jumped on me. You know, all these, like, clowns that work in the, these labs, within a half an hour, they sent me emails. Now, look, I'm p- more people know about me now, thanks to you guys, and you've been a great audience. I'm growing. But I'm not like Dan Bongino or Joe Rogan or, or Tucker or whatever. It's not something that, like, if I would put it out within a half an hour, some academic left-wing guy in a lab is going to know about it. But this thing, it was such a devastating piece. So they have paid people that go around and and just – so these seminar emails that get sent. And it's like, don't you know that N95 stands for not for oil-based? So they meant oil-based, like chemical aerosols, not pathogenic. Okay, but the, the broad – I know – yeah, I know it's different, but it's different without proof of a distinction because the broader point is – that at the end of the day, even a clamped one is only 0.3 microns filtration, and and 90% this is proven in the studies. 90% of the aerosols here are 0.1, so there's no proof that you wouldn't get an infectious dose of it. And so the, the this is the thing: if I'm writing an academic paper. To affirmatively disprove that a form-fitted, fit-tested, clamped N95 can have some degree of efficacy against SARS-CoV-2, then you'd say, well, you know, you can't just bring the evidence from that, you know, thing from the manufacturer because that could be oil-based. This is, you know, whatever. But that wasn't even my point. I was actually conceding. I said, look, if you're gonna, if it's going to work, you'd have to start with the form-fitted. But but my point was, by definition, that's gonna cause health problems. It's not feasible. So they wear it like. You know, uh, you know, off their face, and it it works less than a cloth mask. That was the main point, and so this, as part of that point, is a strong point to make. So I'm sure they'll be on the fact check tomorrow with that. This is the type of lack of common sense. Meanwhile, they're the ones proving affirmatively 100% it does work, and you better wear it. Schools are starting to mandate them. Workplaces. This is unbelievable. Unbelievable, but nothing matters. Now, the one thing that does matter is for you guys to work on um, work on your own self-defense. There's not much time left, but February 20th is the next trip out to Front Sight Nevada with Patriot Academy, the constitutional defense course. Go to patriotacademy.com slash defense. You'll see the dates, the different details. Basically, there's two- and four-day constitution and defensive handgun training. You might know how to shoot at a target, but to properly draw from a holster confidently with the proper five-point draw, sight alignment, picture alignment, trigger control, it, this is the, it is the funnest course. It is the most thorough course. You get to meet all sorts of people from this audience, fellow patriots, have a great time together. Uh, the late uh, winter and the spring is a great time to be out in what's a typically a pretty hot desert there in Pahrump. So again, I'm not. I'm going to be at the March 13th one. If you want to meet me there, um, I've gone through the course several times myself. Again, visit PatriotAcademy.com/defense for 90% off. Typically, it's a thousand dollars at Front Sight for their two-day course, two thousand for the uh, four-day. It's 90% off if you do it through 
uh, <coughs> patriotacademy.com slash defense. So I do want to get to our special guest. Um, you know, just want to go through, again, some of the stuff out there. The unnatural selection with the academic literature and the censorship. So I was speaking to one very smart scientist yesterday, and, and they're finding more and more that if you test blood samples, you, you test people that are months past vaccination, that have the neurological problems, that have the brain fog, that have the inflammation, they have this stuff, they're seeing spike S1 and S2 in their blood. And these people need help. And instead, you can't even get help because they can't get their papers published. So you can't even recognize the existence of the problem. So it's a funny thing that happened. There is an article out. Where is this? In science.org. In rare cases, they finally admit, coronavirus vaccines may cause long COVID-like symptoms. In late 2020, Brianne Dressen uh, began to spend hours in online communities for people with long COVID chronic uh, disabling syndrome that can follow about with the virus for months. I just lurked there, says Dressen. Um, basically, she never had COVID, right? But that November, she'd received a dose of AstraZeneca's vaccine as a volunteer in a clinical trial. But that evening, her vision blurred. Sound became distorted. I felt like I had two seashells in my ears. Her symptoms rapidly worsened, multiplied, ultimately including heart rate fluctuations, severe muscle weakness, and what she describes as debilitating internal electric shocks. A doctor diagnosed her with anxiety. Again, this is the danger, that there's such a psychosis that they won't, even when it's the obvious culprit, they won't look at it. Her husband, Brian Dress, and a chemist began to comb the scientific literature, desperate to help his wife, a former rock climber who now spends most of her time in darkened rooms, unable to brush her teeth or tolerate her young children's touch. As time passed, the Dressens found other people who had experienced serious long-lasting health problems after a COVID-19 vaccine, regardless of the manufacturer. By January 2021, researchers at the NIH began to hear about such reports and sought to learn more, bringing Brian and other affected people to the agency's headquarters for testing and sometimes treatment. And they, they basically go through admitting now that, you know, this stuff is there. For example, evidence from animal studies supports the idea that antibodies targeting the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, the same protein that many vaccines use to trigger the proactive, uh, protective immune response, might cause collateral damage, notes Harold Pruis, a neurologist at the German Center for Neurodegenerative Diseases, and the Charité University Hospital in Berlin. In 2020, while hunting for antibody therapies for COVID-19, he and his colleagues discovered that of 18 antibodies they identified with potent effects against SARS-CoV-2, four also targeted healthy tissues in mice, a sign they say could trigger autoimmune problems. Early clinical data point in a similar direction. Over the past year, research groups have detected unusually high levels of auto antibodies, which can attack the body's own cells and tissues and people after a SARS-CoV-2 infection. In Nature, in May 2021, immunologists Aaron Ring and uh, Akiko Owasaki at Yale, Yale School of Medicine and their colleagues reported finding autoantibodies in acute COVID-19 patients that target the immune system and brain. Interesting. Um, 
And so it doesn't take a genius to know the spike protein is a freaking bioweapon. So if you have the body code for an unlimited number of spikes, and again, look, I'm not putting down the virus. I think the virus is a big, see a lot of them are like, well, yeah, the virus too causes this. But the point is, it's been clear that you can't avoid it. That's obvious. You're going to get it. That's not my fault. That's the fault of the very people you rely on who created the virus and then blocked the treatment for it. The answer is not to treat inflammation with more pro-inflammatory things, the very same things. The answer is to treat it with anti-inflammatories, right? To treat COVID, to treat long COVID, and to treat vaccine injury and stop denying it. Moreover, Moreover, common sense dictates that there is a difference when you go through God's natural defenses for many people, not everyone, and they need to be sympathized with. You can't just deny the problem. You know, for, for most people, their body does deal with it, and they don't have long COVID. But when you're getting behind and around your body's system to unnaturally code it with the mRNA to code for spikes— that's a horse of a different color. You know, um, Stephanie Seneff, this MIT scientist, and I'm hoping to get her on the show next week, she's the leader studying neurodegenerative um, autoimmune problems from the shots. She has a paper out they put on ResearchGate on the preprint server, Innate Immune Suppression by SARS-CoV-2 mRNA Vaccination. And um, I'm just trying to get it here because I have it on my phone. The mRNA vaccines utilize genetically modified mRNA uh, encoding spike proteins. These alterations hide the mRNA from cellular defenses, promote a longer biological half-life for the proteins, and provoke higher overall spike protein production. However, both experimental and observational evidence reveals a very different immune response to the vaccines compared to the response to infection with SARS-CoV-2. As we will show, the genetic modifications introduced by the vaccine are likely the source of these differential responses. In this paper, we present the evidence that vaccination, unlike natural infection, induces a profound impairment in type 1 interferon signaling, which has diverse adverse consequences to human health. We explain the mechanism by which immune cells release into the circulation large quantities of exosomes containing spike protein along with critical microRNAs that induce a signaling response in recipient cells at distant sites. We also identify potential profound disturbances in regulatory control of protein synthesis and cancer surveillance. These disturbances are shown to have potentially direct, uh, uh, direct causal link to neurodegenerative degenerative diseases, myocarditis, immune uh, uh, thrombocytopenia, Bell's palsy, liver disease, impaired adaptive immunity, increased uh, uh, tumorigenesis, and DNA damage. In other words, again, I mean, these are important things that need to be put out. It, it, it triggers a worse response when you do it through the vaccine. Now, we're not saying, oh, that the, that the virus is not a problem. No, they're both the same thing created by the same people to screw us over. But the answer is, unfortunately, we're all going to be exposed to spike protein, either from the virus, the shots, or both. And you need to be honest about it and understand the mechanism and understand what could treat it. Have compassion for people. 
So at the end of the Science Direct article, back to science.org, again, if you want to read it, in rare cases, coronavirus vaccines may cause long COVID-like symptoms. Science.org, if you want to look it up, at the end, they have on there a touchy topic. <laughs> long COVID research also brought the Dresdens to Nath. In January, Nath is a guy, a doctor they're talking about, a scientist. In January 2021, Brian Dresden uh, sought help from Nath, who had been studying long COVID. Dozens more patients described post-vaccine complications found their way to Nath and uh, Farina's uh, Safavi. Um, and, you know, they were just helping out with that. And they say... Um, where is this? I'm just trying to find the operative thing. It's a very long article. People with lasting health problems after vaccination welcome attention to their plight. You have this ugly stain on you, and you're marginalized and abandoned, Brianna Dressen says. At first, I was really afraid of causing vaccine hesitancy. Look how sick that is. Look how disgusting that is. Look, I think these things are much worse than that, but let me just open your mind to something. How, how disgusting... These people are. Let's say they are overwhelmingly not dangerous. Nonetheless, there's been nothing like this that has been given out to over almost everyone in the country. 520 million doses have been administered to, I don't have the exact number, you could easily look it up, maybe 250 million people were up to. Um, 520 million doses. Okay? So even if only 0.2%, one-fifth of 1% 1 of the doses cause long-lasting spike protein syndrome type of things and autoimmune, which I would suspect is a lot more than that. But let's just say 0.2. That's, a, that's an amazing track record, right? 99.8%. But still, nonetheless, that's a million doses worth. Now, some have multiples. So, you know, definitely hundreds of thousands of people. That's a lot of raw numbers of people. You need compassion. You can't deny and censor the publication and study and treatment of things for that. They, they need help. This is a point we should all rally behind. Let's say I go down to 99%. That's still amazing. 99% don't have it. But if 1% do, that's 5 million doses. Okay, and this is just one type of problem we're discussing. It is sickening. It's, it's such a deficit of compassion. It is emotionally wearing me down. The people I'm trying to help, you know, that um, come without treatment. So, so it's the same thing. If you're, if you're not vaccinated and you get covid you're marginalized. If you're vaccinated and you get COVID, you're, you're marginalized. If you have long COVID, you're marginalized. And if you have vaccine injury, you're marginalized. They all need help. Imagine if all this research would come out, the amount of ways that we could help people. The protocols that have been put in place in the treatment of doctors like our next guest and Dr. Tyson and you know Pierre Corey, they've saved countless lives. They've been great. But you know what? If we had a modicum of money behind it, the proper dosage, the proper mixing of the different type of things and probably new things we would discover would make it even better. But they deny the problem. Again, I'm, I'm already spending half the show without our guest, and I don't want to take up more time, but just quickly, one more thing related to this. This is an Elsevier, um, you know, very respected preprint uh, um, uh, journal. 
uh, Leon et al. So it's Maria Cristina Leon, L-E-O-N-E is the lead researcher. The title, if you want to look it up, it's on Science Direct. Four cases of acquired hemophilia A following immunization with mRNA, BNT, you know, yada, yada, basically Pfizer and Moderna. Hemophilia, okay? But again, I'm not even so worried if I get four cases of hemophilia, but it's it's the mechanism of action behind it that's coalescing with what I just mentioned. And they basically say they, they found this in this province in Italy, this one province. During that time period, 235,000 people received at least one dose, and they found four cases so far. So that, that would be one in 50,000. For such a crazy thing like hemophilia, we're not talking about like the myocarditis and the you know long-term inflammation, which is extremely common. This is something that's insanely rare. And even then, one in 50,000, that's, that's not like you know nothing to sneeze at. This is what they write. I want you to listen to what they write. The unusual observation for cases of AHA, basically hemophilia in our province, could be of interest and could sensitize healthcare personnel toward a possible complication of the SARS-CoV-2 immunization. And then they add on this, nonetheless, vaccination benefits exceed potential side effects and play a central role in individual public health of effectively protecting people. You're never allowed to write that in a study, by the way, because that's not your study doesn't prove that. You can't put extraneous editorializing. We've never done that before. But this is what they have to do to, hey, look, the vaccine's amazing. It just, you know, we found one of these things. You, you, you might want to look into it. And even then, 99% of them get um, dunked on. And even then, this is – it's a it's basically there's preprint servers like MedRx and ResearchGate. Elsevier is, is a little bit more prestigious, so there's a little bit more of gatekeeping behind it. But they had to do that to even get a preprint uh, not peer-reviewed out. Um, unbelievable. But I want to talk about a peer-reviewed study out of ivermectin with our next guest. Now, speaking of our next guest here, um, Dr. Flavio Cadigiani, um, he's an um, endocrinologist from Brazil that really has been doing what nobody's doing. If you picture what, what Dr. Brian Tyson does, we had him on two days ago uh, in California, treats 7,000 people uh, at his urgent care clinic. Um, this is the same thing in Brazil, except really there's nobody who has not just treated so many people and saved lives, but has meticulously detailed all of the important markers of the patients. Uh, to give the most detailed uh, analysis, what, what's what's interesting, just to introduce our new guest, you know, everything they do, they could literally mandate on you with no transparency, no data. In the case of things like remdesivir and monopiravir, negative efficacy, major safety concerns, pulled from a trial uh, published in the New England Journal, Journal of Medicine on Ebola because it was causing too much kidney failure. But that's fine. That's fine. But everything we want to do just as a right to try because any everything they're doing is not working. We have everyone coming to me who is sick and distress, and I try to get them to a doctor. They're all vaccinated. They need help. Stop lying to people. No, it's not enough. Not enough data. Wrong. There's problems with it. Misinformation. Everything's wrong. So uh, Dr. Flavio has been involved with a study, the lead author, 
uh, was uh, Professor Kerr, uh, a Brazilian study that was done with the cooperation of the Brazilian Health Department of 220,000 people in Itajai, uh, a place in, in Santa Catarina, a state in Brazil. So you want to talk about a sample size, we'll give you a sample size greater than anything that was ever done on anything with COVID for two years. And the it, it's an observational study. They basically had, um, you know, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get to the exact numbers, but like 150,000 took ivermectin, a certain number of tens of thousands didn't take it as the control group, and they followed them. And this was a low dose, 0.2 mg per keg. So you guys are now familiar with the dosage. Most of you are taking 0.4 prophylactically for two days every other week. So in other words, Sunday, Monday, and then you won't take it again for another two weeks. So really very low dose. We're not talking about the five consecutive days of 0.4 low dose. And what it basically found was with something called propensity uh, score matching, where you adjust because it turns out that the study group had the sicker, older people in it. If you adjust for that, you you basically had a mortality rate dropping uh, by by fifty nine percent. And uh, well, 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 you know what? We'll get into the numbers with our guests. Why am I doing this? But at great results, large study, and. It is now published in Cure's uh, journal. It's a San Francisco-based journal. So if you look up Cure's ivermectin prophylaxis used for COVID-19, a citywide prospective observational study of 223,128 subjects using propensity score matching. Lead author is Lucy Kerr, K-E-R-R. So Google that. You should find it. Um, this is earth shattering with us today is none other than Dr. Karigiani to delve into this doctor. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, I thank you for the opportunity to bring, uh, to bring our, uh, to tell you a bit about how our study, how this was conducted, uh, and how it could impact in overall health systems worldwide, not only before, but maybe in the future. So perfect, perfect. And um, it's, it's a definitely a fascinating study. Obviously, you, it was done with the cooperation of an entire city. So you both have data that I call micro, meaning the subjects, but then also macro epidemiologically that you're then able to compare the entire city to all the surrounding cities over a course of time. So could you go through all the critical top lines yeah, um, and then talk about some of the con confounding factors that both make it, you know, maybe you got to say it's not quite as good as it, as it would represent, but then other factors that would indicate it might be better than what the top lines indicate. Yeah. First of all, we need to remember, this is an observational populational study. So of course there will be some limitations and sincerely, Compared to other studies, similar studies, ours uh, was much well, much better controlled for variables. So this is very important to to bring because some may say, "Oh goodness, he, the person uh, they did not uh, adjust for income." Goodness, I've never seen a study on COVID being adjusted for <laughs> income, for example. 
So we adjusted for the most important variables, what really mattered. And we had the opportunity to, to have the full city, 223,000 people uh, registered in the city, in the system. So it was easier because all the cases, all the hospitalizations and all the deaths were mandatorily registered. So we had full control even from the control group. So this allowed us to evaluate whether and every single person that got that uh, used ivermectin that through the program uh, was uh, registered as well. So we had a strict control of those who use it, the whole, those who did not use ivermectin. And also, as we're going to bring later on, uh, the amount of ivermectin taken. So this was, uh, myself, it's very important to bring that I did not believe in ivermectin as prophylaxis. It didn't mean, it doesn't mean that I did not, uh, that I was against, because from a human perspective, if there is not other alternatives, uh, an extremely safe, uh, long known, and uh, potentially effective treatments should be provided until you have further responses. So from a humanistic perspective, I would never uh, prevent my patients or anyone else from having an opportunity to be saved. So this is really important to tell. So this was a five month period program. There is a lot of resistance against any type of this program. So the those who were in charge of this program uh, had to face a lot of challenges regarding all those missing, the actual misinformation, the telling that the city had not uh, the least lead was had not the lowest mortality rate in the state. So we need to propose, we need to see the accurate pro, uh, comparisons. So we compared within the city before and after the mortality rate. Uh, the city has different characteristics than the other cities in the region because this has a huge port and a dynamic population coming and going. Mm. And so it had the largest number of case, the highest number of cases per capita since the beginning of the pandemics. So of course, the numbers will not be as good as from other smaller other cities. But compared to what it was before, we had a great improvement, which was proven through the numbers and numbers are also verifiable out there. So you can go to their official, the official page from the city or anywhere else. You can check the data on your on your own. OK, so we got the data, the data set from all these people, especially from the 145,000 that used Ivermectin. So we have details regarding all each of these hundreds of thousands of patients. This all this is all in the data sets that we are about to make it public. Yeah. And I just want to stop you there. You guys are about, it's going to be published on the Cures website. You're going to make the entire database of 145,000 people, all the markers, uh, all the subpoints available to all the global scientists to critique, to overlook, just as a study for something that none of you are making money off of. There's no ivermectin, you know, business. There's no, I mean, it's off patent generic drug. Whereas the people that stand to make God knows how many billions of dollars have contracts with the government, have the ability to market, have the government market mandated on you. There's no transparency. Obviously, my audience is aware of the British Medical Journal editorial on that um, from from uh, Dr. Dashi that, you know, no transparency. You guys are laying it all out there. 
Exactly. We are the response to the lack of transparency when we most needed it here in the, during the pandemics. It's the most critical period that we needed transparency above all. So the lack of transparency may tell you something, that something is not exactly as they tell. So we wanted to be 100% transparent. I know there is a lot of people out there who are waiting for our data sets only to try to destroy it. I know there, and those who are thirst, they are crazy to get the data set to try to fabricate tools. So we will not accept fabricated tools to detect uh, alleged inconsistencies. Everyone is invited to go in the city of Itajaí and check the data by themselves with the, the team there. So uh, the data is to be further analyzed, of course, if there is something that is not 100% right. We are here, we are exposing the data set so, because we want to improve the level of the quality of the analysis. Someone may bring better quality of analysis, someone may have further high uh, insights. So we wanted to build up all of these together. That's the main reasons. So transparency, by the way, it's a transparency that is uh, always asked for us that interestingly is not asked for the vaccines and and yep. those the patent drugs studies. It's quite interesting. That, and the same, the same, the same ones who are clearly biased, they only seek for the bad sides. They, they, you see that they lose their credibility because you clearly see that they are completely biased. Yeah. They only check for the bad data. They never make good, they never exactly. see the good on both sides. Exactly. And, and, and I think the bigger point too is that, you know, at some point you have the strength of so much evidence. So you have tons of all different types of studies from all over the, the, the world. You have the reality. So in other words, I'm not into anecdotes. None of us are. You know, I help people with ivermectin and other things. And, oh, I was better the next day. Yeah, I mean, you don't know what it was going to do. But when you have the number of cases on ventilators being turned around suddenly, I mean, at some point, in some ways, that's stronger than a randomized controlled trial because it's reality. The um, You know, we, we have a baseball player, famous baseball player here. Uh, uh, you know, he's... He, used to play for the Yankees, Yogi Berra, and he once said, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. So it's like, you know, there are certain times that, in theory, you, maybe it shouldn't work. Or in theory, masks, if you blow particles in a man with mannequins in a lab, it could work. But in reality, when you look epidemiologically, it it, 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 it just hasn't done anything. The, the, the vaccines are not performing the way they said. And ivermectin, it, it's, it's helping people. The question we should all be trying to get to the bottom of, there's no question it works. It's the only thing that has a paper on a Nature Journal of Antibiotics. 20 mechanisms of action, very in-depth. No one has written that about anything else. There's no question there's efficacy. The question is, to what extent, what stage, dosage, and that's what we should all be getting to about. What other adjuncts should you use with it? Because unlike the other side that's like, the vaccine is a thousand percent, we're like, look, you know, even if it's 50, 60, 70, that's great, but there's a lot of people left behind, so you need multi-drug therapy, and we'll get to that. Could you start with just the top lines? So what are the top lines from the study? So basically, our study has the best of a uh, randomized clinical trial-like study because the propensity score matched, uh, matching that we employed. 
raises the level of the evidence uh, close to a randomized clinical trial together with the real life uh, results because we check the data within the city is strictly controlled. So if our study that showed a 44% reduction in infection rate, but better than that, an almost 70% reduction in mortality rate, which is what really matters, which has been confirmed because compared to prior to the program, after the program, the mortality rate within the same city, the same population, decreased by 80% approximately. So we this if this study does not fit into what they call as criteria, I don't know what else is required. So this study fits all the criteria to fill up for its approval. There is no other reason that uh, the World Health Organization, FDA, our our reg, our agency here, uh, would not approve with such an analysis, so rigorous analysis in such level. And whenever we see all these fact checkers bringing the data, they only they only provide further strength to our study because, first of all, you see that there is, they have no arguments at all. And the arguments they try to bring actually only make our study even stronger because they they say, oh, they did not control for ivermectin regularly, uh, regular use. Yes, of course, this is just like any a clinical trial during, uh, doing a an intent to treat uh, like type of study, which is, mm -hmm. which is you include someone, whether the person followed, whether there was compliance or not, include everyone. This is the most, the most uh, conservative type of analysis. So if we had controlled, if we have only those patients that, uh, that used ivermectin regularly, as everyone will see later that we should publish in the upcoming days, results were even better. So everything, oh, they did not control for this or that. Of course, they were only completely uh, completely uh, peripheral and very likely not uh, influencing factors yep. that yep. were complaining. So the lack of arguments was the best argument we could ever, ever have. So I don't see why. Our study uh, seems really uh, is Possibly, of course, there are some weaknesses, but compared to the other studies and compared to the vaccines, if you sum the level of transparency we are bringing, we are offering our faces to be to be kicked, right? Because everyone, some are there only to destroy. You see that they are meant to destroy studies on ivermectin and repurposed drugs. So I don't see why we don't, uh, uh, if our study is not sufficient for this, there's nothing else that could be done. There are no randomized clinical trials because our study was the was basically a type of a randomized clinical trial applied to real life. There's nothing better than this. To than real this. life. That, that's what I keep saying. See, I understand. We all understand why you want blind, double-blinded randomized controlled trials as a standard. But in reality, there are it's not it's not in a hierarchy that an observational is always worse. Sometimes it's even more informative because you just pull out some random oh in a hospital we had an RCT and here's what we have. Okay, I mean whatever maybe. But the best thing is when you like we found this very compelling that if you believe masks and and these current shots are that effective to the degree that they're saying you should, if you did an analysis, observ observational, just just statistical, of case rates by time compared to vaccination rates by 3,000 counties in America, 50, 60 countries, 
you should at least find a correlation. You know, we know correlation doesn't even prove causation, but you should definitely have it. Instead, there has never been correlation. In fact, the Harvard demographer who did this, 3,000 American counties, 50 or 60 countries, he found a weak reverse correlation, and that was pre-Omicron. If it's Omicron, it seems the evidence is, is pretty strong reverse correlation, certainly with case rates. Uh, you know, outcomes is a little bit more complicated. To me, that's a lot more compelling because, again, as Yogi Berra said, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. Exactly. Practice is what matters. It's the real world. You tested an entire city, and then, you know, so you had the data among the groups, but then in totality, unlike with the vaccines where we saw everywhere, the rates went up. It got worse. 2021 was worse than 2020. Here... Um, it actually, you saw a 73% a reduction over time um, of, of hospitalizations to cases in that city over that five-month period. So, again, let me just get the numbers right. So, um, you had a, a reduction, you know, uh, uh, lowered the risk of death compared to the control group by close to 70%, risk of hospitalization by 67%. But to be clear, you're ultimate numbers were a little bit lower but you adjusted them because the the sicker older people joined the ivermectin group so when you did the propensity matching that's what came out yeah yeah actually exactly so because we matched the groups which makes it uh as randomized we could say uh like as randomized clinical trials this is very important to state that's the only missing point would be the double blind but if you remember, uh, theoretically, the use of ivermectin would lead to a worse social behavior. So it would increase the, 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 the chances of getting infected. Never forget this. So double blinding here would make this, the results even better because those who use ivermectin from the theory, uh, from a speculative perspective, they would uh, allow themselves to more wilder behavior or something. So they would be ex more exposed to the virus. So we would expect even better results. So the point is this, uh, I don't know this, uh, how to say this, but the point is uh, you're using your brain. So you're concluding all things about the study, which has no questions. It's unsputable what we found there. It was a bit surprising to me as well, but it's you're prohibited to use your brain. This is a clear example, because if you use it, you undergo a strong collective uh, gaslighting process. We never should never forget that. So they will pretend you're crazy. They will pretend. So it, there is a, a full method behind it. So they just pretend dementia. You don't see the same level of analysis from the same people. So it's clearly, it's 100% clear. It's just those who don't want to see what is happening now. So it's more and more, it's clearer than ever. Yeah. So you must have something missing. It may be IQ or it may be... Uh... <laughs> well, it's an agenda. It's an agenda because, again, it's not like this is the first and only thing. It's on top of all the people being turned around on ventilators. It's on top of understanding 20 mechanisms of actions and, and it's articulated in a way that no other drug has been articulated. It's it's a matter of DARPA, our, our, our lead agency, on dealing with the development of biological products 
uh, we now have a FOIA email which made it clear that um, this Major uh, Michael Murphy wrote to the Inspector General of our Pentagon uh, that ivermectin seems to work at every stage. So we have a government document. You put it all together, and it's it's definitely very powerful. I have a couple of questions for you on the technicalities of the study. So, you know, the, obviously they're going to say – they're saying that some of the people didn't complete the treatment. They stopped taking the ivermectin. Now, I'm not very bright here, but doesn't that mean that if anything, it would make your results more conservative? Exactly. <laughs> You're using your brain, your brain more than <laughs> almost everyone currently. So, yes, exactly. So this is the results are underestimated. Otherwise, of course, as we're going to show afterwards, those who use it regularly had way better results. These are up. These results are upcoming in the next maybe a couple of days or next week. Oh wow! So yeah, we're we're excited to see that. And and I want to make it clear: like, there's one thing if you have a small study of 50 people and then you have good results, but a number of them didn't even take it. So you're like, well, maybe that's just left to statistical ch chance. It wasn't because of that. But when you have such a massive P value, such a massive sample size. So even if something didn't take it all, all the better, it makes it even better. Um, another big question I'm getting from people interested in the study is, okay, so this was a prophylaxis. It was a pretty low dose, 0.2 migs, two consecutive days every other week. You know, so you have a break of, of almost two weeks between. But then, you know, and there was a reduction with um, COVID in getting it, but a lot of people still get it, right? The main point is not to get, you know, clinically ill from it and the cytokine storm. So once they did get it, okay, once they did get it, what did the people do? What did they use? What were the treatment options? Oh, the treatment option was wait and see. So it's a little bit uh, counterintuitive, but uh, the city did not provide any drug for treatments, for COVID treatments, because it may sound weird, but it's easier to provide prophylaxis than treatment. Treatment was more stigmatized than prophylaxis by that time. But, but what I'm so, trying to say is, could you say, now this doesn't disprove ivermectin, it, if anything, proves it, but but what I'm trying to say is this. Could you say that it doesn't necessarily show as much to the point you're showing the strength of prophylaxis in that because you created a culture in the city, an awareness that this is a potentially a beneficial treatment, that when they did get COVID, they went ahead and, I don't know, they took consecutive days. They took 0.4. Oh, it may be. Uh, but it's not supported by the by the by the government by the health system there. So it's there's a, an interesting point. Itajaí, the city, it's located in southern Brazil. Uh, among the cities that did not support, it's weird. I know it's weird because it does not it does support prophylaxis, but does not support therapy. But it's a bit different because they really uh, the the level of responsibility is different. It was. So anyway, and they did it before the vaccines. They it became uh, unfeasible to continue the program after the beginning of the vaccination because they said the those who were following together said that now there would be an alternative. So the program did not continue. 
Well, they did not provide early treatments. This is 100% sure. Uh, you may have someone who took it by by themselves or got doctors, private doctors, but the mass, uh, uh, if you get the mass itself, they did not. And among the cities that did not have treatments, they, got, they, got, they had amongst the lowest mortality rates overall since 2020. Okay, mm -hmm. they have 40% below the average from the country mortality rates, and they have the amongst the highest uh, infection rate. But they had this thing about uh, the dynamics. The city always had the city has amongst the highest uh, rates of HIV rates in Brazil as well. So the city is not a very easy city to mm -hmm. to conduct. It's a great, it's an amazing city, but they do have some high rates for other diseases, uh, infectious diseases as well. Wow. No, that's that that's important. So it's it's not like it was an obscure place. You know, it's kind of like Miami, Florida here in the in the winter. Everywhere I live here in the north, everyone goes down there. Everyone I know uh, goes down there. So they get people from all over the place. Um, when when you look at a study this size, so what's going to be very instructive about it is not just the efficacy, but the safety. What sort of safety data do you have? Oh, uh we found the safety was easier first of all we did not have uh, a severe adverse effect at all okay a hundred just a hundred with a hundred a hundred forty five thousand people taking it we to our knowledge there were not uh severe adverse effects at all so second among those patients who were infected that were hospitalized due to COVID. So we consider these patients that they failed with ivermectin for as prophylaxis because they not only got COVID, but the disease progressed to the need of hospitalization. Even these patients, when compared to those who did not take ivermectin, they had better liver, kidney, and inflammatory parameters. Okay? And they did not take ivermectin during treatment. And you have the data on that? You, that yeah. You that that granular that you went down into those markers, the serum levels, the um, I mean, unbelievable. So so I want to ask you another one more thing. Sure. The highest was the amount of ivermectin they took. The lower were the left liver, kidney and inflammatory levels with a dose response. The, the, OK, so I don't think you realize how important that point is. It's more important than you realize I am dealing with and I've talked about on the show people I know personally, this is a big problem, kidney transplant transplant patients or people in renal failure for various reasons. And it's a big question we get about um, the safety of it. We'll, we'll have doctors say it's bad for the liver or the kidney. Yeah, I've heard that if anything, it could improve it. Are you, is that what you're saying? Yeah, basically, those who say that they, they, it's bad for kidneys or liver, they are based on uh, on a different dimension, a different world, not from here, because there is nothing that supports these uh, affirmations. So unlike these affirmations, we do have strong uh, plausibility to support that ivermectin may improve liver's health. We do not have as the same uh, for the kidneys, but we do not have uh, anything bad for kidneys as well. What we have is that it has multiple anti-inflammatory uh, actions that have been demonstrated in vitro and in vivo. That of course, they may not work alone, but altogether, it's very unlikely that ivermectin does not work protecting. So that's, that may be the reason it also works for post-COVID as well. 
So we do have a lot of uh, reasons to believe that our results are just an expected consequence of the massive uh, appropriate use and human ethical moral use of ivermectin in the absence of other options. Remember the price, the safety, the familiarity of doctors with ivermectin because it's being used for as long now. All these together, they provide us no doubt that there's not such a room. Uh, some, it's a completely right choice to have it. In, in other words, the point you're making is there's one thing if this is a brand new drug and it already has major safety signals, and you're like, well, I really want to make the bar even higher. You know, kind of like remdesivir, monipiravir, you know, things like that, that they admit have serious issues, and nothing really has shown it works, including their own work. So maybe you want to take a look at it. Here, it's like, nah, well, maybe this confounder will make it, like, Look, it's safe anyway. It won a Nobel Prize. We don't. I mean, how much more do you want to see? Um, the 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 juxtaposition, meaning the comparison of what they want to use to what they don't want to use, is unbelievable. Yeah, but uh, just to give you a new information, uh, among those thousands that used in the accumulator dose at least uh, 180 milligrams of ivermectin during five months. Okay, uh, this is 100 milli 180 milligrams. Uh, would be using it for, depends. Uh, so would that's be, about 35 a month, about 35 milligrams a month. Yeah, but that that's not uh, not 180, sorry. Uh, yeah, it's 180 milligrams, exactly. Mm -hmm. 35 milligrams a month. There were only, there was only one single death, okay? And there, with a person that used 37, uh, 37 tablets, which is 37 multiplied by six milligrams each, would be something like a hundred, uh, yeah. So it's thirty versus six, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm so glad you mentioned that. You're saying that the second half of your study is going to focus on the cumulative effect of a buildup of ivermectin. Exactly, and we chose a very uh, steady uh, dose response uh, curve. A very, it's very well. It's it's dosage, dosage. Okay, that's what I'm glad you brought it up because everyone's asking about that, and and everyone, and that's where I want to take the discussion to the here and now, where it's a different dynamic from the study. But I want to bring in the study and see what we can and what we cannot learn. There are certain factors that are playing out now that make some things about the study not as favorable to the current situation, but then there are certain things we're learning that we could probably make it even better. So just to set the table here, obviously this was done through December 2020. That was before Delta and certainly before Omicron. That's what we're dealing with. Now, and feel free to correct me if I'm making a mistake, but you know, from doctors that are doing similar to what you're doing in America, what, what they basically have explained to me is this, that Delta and Omicron are extremely aggressive. Um, Omicron's aggressive more in the transmissibility way. It's not so pathogenic, thankfully. Um, it's actually much milder. And Delta seems to be a real, real beast, very pathogenic. They're very aggressive viral, viral replication. Um, why they're like that is anyone's guess, but I think Dr. Gert Vandenbosch might have what to say. What caused that, you know... To, to uh, suddenly reverse the typical trend we see where it gets 
you know, l less pathogenic and certainly not more transmissible and more pathogenic, but it became that way. Um, and this thing is much harder to treat. And what it seems to me is this. Ivermectin has three buckets. Antiviral, anti-inflammatory, anticoagulant. It seems to me that the anti-inflammatory, anticoagulant is holding up, but the notion that you could prophylax and block even getting it and getting a certain amount of baseline flu-like symptoms clearly has fallen with Delta. Omicron, to begin with, is kind of mild to begin with, so it's hard to even tell. It doesn't need so much treatment. So you have that. So the question to you is this. Where does prophylaxis fit in in the world of Delta and Omicron, in your view? And where does dosing fit in? In other words, it clearly... I, I, just one more thing. Unlike the other side... We don't do to ivermectin what they do to the shots. We don't make it a god in idolatry. Um, you know, it's 100% for everyone, every time. Shut up. I don't want to hear anything. No, we're like, look, it worked very well, the original strain. It still has a role to play. We feel you need multi-drug therapy to make sure, you know, 50, 60, 70% is great, but we want 100%. We want to keep everyone out. Talk a little bit about the practicality of what we can use from this study and versus what we need to update based on the strains that are out there. So there's one thing that surprised me. Uh, Omicron variant, at least here in Brazil, it looks like it's transmitted through telepathy because it's so much transmissible. It's so transmissible. And I do not have, among my almost 200 patients that continued to use ivermectin, there is still not a single case of COVID-19 among those that used ivermectin at least once every 15 days, which is not what I recommend. I recommend weekly, okay? But for some reason, they do not get, they did, and listen, I've, I have seen in the last three weeks more than 400 patients with mm -hmm. COVID-19. None of them was using ivermectin, including me, because we believed in the vaccine. And myself, I believed that I wouldn't get COVID again because I had COVID before. So only those that continue to use ivermectin, and I have like several clusters, 20 people, the three that were using ivermectin were the only three that used 100% accuracy. I'm, even being a scientist, I try to be more skeptical. But this, I can tell you with 100% accuracy, it works as a prophylaxis for Omicron variant. So interesting. But, I, but would you agree with me, would you agree with the following statement? That for Delta, it's better to have the consecutive, aggressive, much higher dose at the time you get it to avoid the cytokine storm, the inflammation, as opposed to the low-dose prophylaxis as somehow relying as an antiviral because it's so aggressive, you're probably going to get it. Because I could just tell you, we have seen, um, as much as we're still fans of ivermectin, it has its role, but if someone were only taking ivermectin without anything else, including even prophylactically, there were people that got into trouble. Not just got it, but got into trouble too. I know, twice weekly. There is a point, in the US, you're getting ivermectin from other countries, uh, the sources. I'm not, I'm not sure whether the reability, the quality of the ivermectin you guys having. 
Interesting. So this, may be, this may be an issue. So we here, huh. we for Delta, we use so just one point. The gamma variant that was strictly here in Brazil was four times more lethal than Delta variant. There are studies showing that. So Delta for us that was a relief compared to the gamma <laughs> variant we had in the beginning of 2021. By the way. This is the reason why monopiravir worked. And uh, if you see the study on monopiravir, the only country where it was... Was Brazil. Factor, yeah. Why? One variant. Because it may have worked a little bit for... Because it had more outcomes. So, of course, <sighs> there you could detect differences. And it may... It, it really worked more. None of these ones, I can bet, none of these new agents for approved for COVID-19 will work for the Omicron variant at all. So I want to make this very clear to our audience. Paxlovid, the Pfizer drug, they're, they're like 90% effective. Now, by the way, I don't believe any monotherapy against the bioweapon gain-of-function spike protein. I don't think any monotherapy, including ivermectin, maybe with the original strain, but not with Delta. Nothing was achieving 90%. And they're telling us Paxlovid alone with nothing else, no steroids, nothing is 90%. And you're, you're telling me that's nonsense. It's nonsense at all, especially for, for Omicron. So remember, my studies, we had, so you got it perfectly. So you need to remember, uh, SARS-CoV-2 has a very complex pathophysiology. So it's very unreasonable, unreasonable to believe that a single drug will work it appropriately. So on the other hand, it's very uh, convenient to study ivermectin alone, for example, because it won't show a hundred ninety percent reduction. So it may help you to maintain the narrative that it doesn't work. So every, so you see so, a sixty percent reduction. It was not sufficient to approve ivermectin, but it's very convenient for big pharma to to continue uh, testing yeah. ivermectin on other doses and alone. So the and, point is, and by the way, just so I understand the pathophysiology, the mechanisms of action here, to me, I'm not a scientist. I'm, I'm a, I run my mouth for, my, for a living. But I just look at ivermectin has 20 mechanisms of action spread out of uh, all the stages, anti-inflammatory, anticoagulant. They're telling me that a drug that has no anticoagulant, no anti-inflammatory, and then at the antiviral, it has one of ivermectin's mechanisms as a protease inhibitor, and ivermectin's been proven to be the best protease inhibitor we have so far, and ivermectin, there's no way it was achieving 90% without anything else against Delta. Delta, it was not. Maybe the original one, uh, everyone else, it was, it was like magic. The D Delta, a lot of people it was, but a lot of people, if we didn't, we need multi-drug therapy, they're telling me Paxlovid's 90%. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a bit uh, weird. Well, we may be surprised with numbers. We could wait. It's interesting that nobody asks for these the data set to check the results, right? <laughs> so you don't see the same scientists, the data scientists that are hunting to try to belittle the, the studies to try to... to to, bring, to, to question and to try to destroy the studies on repurposed drugs are the same ones that never require the data for these studies on Paxlovid, for example. And we need to remember, unlike ivermectin, Paxlovid, is a, they work as a direct antiviral agent. So it means that uh, any change in the virus will likely uh, lead to loss of efficacy. Unlike Paxlovid, ivermectin has indirect viral antiviral action. So it means that it helps the host against the, the virus. Whole system. 
So probably changes on the virus does not affect uh, does not affect as much as Paxlovid probably does. So I I, I want to get to more of the here and now too. I did this a little bit yesterday with the doctor we had on, Doctor Lynn Finn. Um, but I want to get your take on this. So right now we have mainly Omicron, but every once in a while you get surprised. Someone has a terrible cytokine storm. They get to pulmonary very quickly, which was a, a sign of Delta. Delta seems to be more the high fever, loss of taste and smell. Omicron's more the annoying nasal congestion and the sore throat, more like a typical cold, but then it has the weird SARS-CoV-2 muscle aches and some other weird, you know, the headache. But sometimes it's hard to tell. So could you, again, one of the things I love about people like you and your American counterparts, you're not married to idolatry like the other side. Pierre Corey made his entire name in America on ivermectin, but nonetheless, he's like, you know what? With this, I'm seeing more hydroxychloroquine without Omicron, get into the betadine nasal spray, other things. Um, I one of the things I appreciate about you is your big thing, you're an endocrinologist, so your big discovery was the androgen blockers, um, you know, perhaps alutamide, um, dutasteride, spironolactone, things like that. That was for Delta. What's your, can you briefly describe in a way our audience could understand the difference between the way Delta and Omicron enter the cells and therefore why that dictates different treatment? Well, basically, the there was a, uh, a key change that whereas all the previous variants enter the cell basically through something called Tempers 2 and ACE2. Tempers 2 is a protein that prepares the cell and it's mediated by androgens. The only known endogenous mediators are androgens. And it uses, and then after its preparation, SARS-CoV-2, the virus, uh, couples to the ACE2, which is part of a system called renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, which makes basically controls your blood pressure and is the main cause of hypertension, to be primary or secondary, and enters into the cell using this ACE2, okay? So because, so the drugs that acted on Tempers 2 and ACE2 worked pretty well. Uh, conversely, Omicron does not use any of these two proteins to enter into the cell. Uh, the uh, Omicron variant enters into the cell directly through a process called endocytosis using ribosomes from the cells. So something called catepsin. So here, this basically there was a switch in the type of cell entry from Delta to Omicron. And this affects very strongly which medication should work or not. For example, hydroxychloroquine comes back to scene and should and must be considered for these variants, okay? Mm -hmm. We tried to throw hydroxychloroquine away. It was well succeeded with those frauds that nobody questioned why back in 2020 that was published in the Lancet. Nobody questioned why that fraud was published trying to destroy uh, hydroxychloroquine's reputation on COVID. And so things that have never been asked and it's very weird why you've never asked sure, why these sure. publications. Well, anyway. And is that is that with yeah. zinc together with zinc? Better better with zinc. Okay. Another drug that could work pretty well is nitazoxanide, uh, which is an anti-elmetic, just like ivermectin. It was supposed to be cheap. Uh, here it's very cheap because like a, uh, the treatment, the overall treatment costs like uh, $1.5, and we it works uh, closely to this type of cell entry as well. 
anti-androgens, the androgen blockers, do not work as well at all, okay? So I do not recommend uh, androgen blockers, which are the drugs that I studied, that I demonstrated to be effective to work so, uh, uh, to work so well on the Omicron variants. I would leave uh, androgen blockers as third or fourth line therapy. So I am telling as an author for these studies, that it should does not work as well as Omicron. This is quite clear sure. because it really highly works on tempers too. It may work further as an anti-inflammatory uh, because it may work as for sepsis, for example, but it not as an antiviral agent. Could you talk a little bit more about nitazoxanide? It's, it's the one stone that even the expert doctors haven't really overturned much here because it's so unavailable, so expensive. We have Seven Cells Pharmacy, uh, by the way, folks, if you use uh, coupon Daniel, they do. It's still a little bit on the expensive side, but it's it's at least it's not a thousand dollars. But it's you know why for a course of treatment with my promo code it could be about one hundred and eighty. Yes. Um, and some people have gotten it. It does see. I mean, it's worked phenomenally for the people I know, but it's too small of a sample size. Um, do you have more coming out on that? Number one and number two. I'm dealing with a lot of people that are in very desperate uh, straits. They're really desperate. They're on ventilators, and you want to, you know, think of things like metformin and different things for the pulmonary fibrosis. Is there any reason to believe nitazoxanide would have any role in that late stage, you know, onset of fibrosis and a really bad cytokine storm? Yeah, I think that could because it works on the interferon. Uh, it works in uh, modulating the release of interferons, which are which are work, which uh, have an important role during the ketokine storm. So there's one point that's very important that would everyone knows that even not even doctors realize is that when it turns into a new variant, it's a new disease in terms of pathophysiology and clinical manifestations, biochemical manifestations, and uh, and risks of uh, outcomes. So this is very important because I don't think a clinical trial that has proven to be 90% effective for something could be ever be applied for the following variants. You could say it may work, but it could never say it works. Anyone who understands about, the, about pathophysiology, who really understands about the disease, is 100% sure that it's not like that, that we should see treatments for COVID-19. I am here telling you, it was effective for previous variants. It's yep. not, uh, androgen blockers do not work as well. For that was your big discovery. And exactly. you're not married to it because what you're married to is saving lives. Saving lives, so, exactly. but, but to be clear, to be clear, I just want to get this straight. There are no Omicron studies for remdesivir, monopiravir, or Paxlovid. And there will never, there should never be because they will prove not to be effective at all. Trust me. I, this is unbelievable. Our government spent several billion dollars buying up Paxlovid because they said 90%, which anyway, that was Delta. There's no way. I'll eat my hat if it was 90% against. I don't understand how it could be, um, you know, 90%. That, that, that was such a terrible uh, disease. Yeah, with a little bit of intellectual honesty. <laughs> we'll never consider direct antiviral agents, okay? Because we know that once available, it would be outdated. So this is the yes. very first reason. One, one medication that could work for late-stage COVID would be spironolactone. It has anti-fibrotic uh, roles. Huh. Spironolactone would work amazingly for the late stages because it really prevents 
kidney, liver, heart, and lung uh, complications. It's a cheap medication. It was the first one. It was the first reason why I entered into the field. Back in April 2020, I published a letter to the editor in the American Journal of Physiology, uh, bringing spironolactone into scene. So I thought, look, maybe by that time, some antihypertensives were questioning whether they were risk factors for COVID. Said, okay, if in case you have any doubt, you could you could switch to spironolactone because it really blocks ACE2. It increases circulating ACE2. Circulating ACE2 uh, couples to to SARS-CoV-2 and prevents its cell entry. Not except for Omicron, right? Now, okay, because Omicron does have it. Omicron had such many changes that uh, that locked the the spike proteins to be used as as uh, the receptor binding globi, uh, glo, uh, domain to be as optimally used as the previous ones. So it kind of it locked itself. So let me ask you this. Is the spike protein not as much of an issue with Omicron, for example? Is it, we don't have it proven yet, but is it likely that there won't be as much of an issue with long COVID from Omicron? I'm not pretty sure because I do not believe that 100% of the long-term complications are due to spike protein. I think there's more out there. Mm. Uh, but the point is, will the vaccines that are based on spike proteins work as well? Good question. Um, that so. would be interesting because they're very quick to say in the country, no monoclonal antibodies work against Omicron, but somehow the antibodies of the shots work against Omicron, but then don't. It's not working at all. Look, look, let's be very clear. It's not working to prevent uh, infections by Omicron at all. It's exact. We can we can even say that basically from my patients, I got COVID the first time. Those who were in fact, so Omicron is the first variant that is really leading to reinfections, to real reinfections. Okay. Sure. You may have had some uh, rare cases before, but now you have a real reinfection. Only those who were vaccinated after COVID had reinfections. Those who were infected and were not vaccinated further were very less likely to get reinfected by Omicron variant. This is what I've observed. This is not scientific, but it's a very strong observation I had. It doesn't mean that it not those. It doesn't mean that those who were not vaccinated but got a first infection uh, never had a reinfection. They didn't have a few, but much yes. less than those who got COVID infection and were vaccinated. During I Delta, was, we saw it all the time. All the time. So I'm telling you, there's something, maybe uh, the vaccines led to a weaker immune response. I don't know. Despite the antibodies it, for Omicron, you may say anything, but it doesn't work. It, do, it doesn't it, work. And, and, and folks, I just want to mention, I forgot to mention this before, but I'll do it with Dr. Flavio here. Um, we, we wait in anticipation every Thursday afternoon for the UK Health Security Agency weekly data to come out. They have the best data. They compared all the different cohorts. And guess what? This Thursday, yesterday was the first one. They suddenly, without notice, without any um, information, dropped the double vax cohort. Now, so they just have triple vax versus unvaccinated. Now, even then, the triple vax have a higher infection rate adjusted per capita than the unvaccinated in every age cohort over 30. 
But our theory based on the last few weeks is that the double vaxxed are so bad into some version of ADE or original antigenic sin. Some, there's something wrong going on there that they couldn't allow that graphic to be seen. It's appalling. They're like double, triple the infection rate. So the triple vaxxed are only a little bit because the, you have you know, a little bit more juice left in them. But, but the double will demonstrate that the triple will be there in about a month. You know, they'll be in the same place. The lack of transparency, unbelievable. I could talk to you forever. This is amazing. One last thing we got to run. Very critically important to people. Um, and I've been struggling with this. Delta has been very traumatic. It seems like Gamma was for you guys, um, but it wasn't as transmissible. Delta, there are so many people in their 40s, 50s, certainly 60s um, that they had their lives cut short. It, it was horrible. What... You know, um, what is your, you know, what you feel from the evidence? And I guess we're still talking more Delta because Omicron won't really do this to people. But the people that either didn't do early treatment or if they did, it just didn't work. That day five to day eight, the SATs start dropping. And that's when you know you're in trouble. You got to jump on it. Is it budesonide? Is it prednisone? What are some of the best things that you think the onset of the pulmonary phase need to be dealt with? Well, to me, uh, I understand, uh, as an endocrinologist, I understand there is a relative adrenal insufficiency. It doesn't mean that your adrenals, which are the glands that produce cortisol, are, are not producing. They, they are producing as much as they can, but not enough to, to, to overcome the level of inflammation brought by the cytokine storm. Uh, having this, I tell you, sh you should use the highest dose you can. You could use like a gram of methylpergenizolone per day for three days, like a pulse therapy. A, hundred, a thousand milligrams per day for three days, for example. I, With a thousand milligrams of what? Methylpergenizolone. Methylprednisolone. So, exactly. so to, to make it very clear, they're using six milligrams of dexamethasone and often too late, the wrong drug at the wrong dose at the wrong time because they wait until their SATs are in their 80s. When you get a guy outpatient, SATs are dropping in, in the 90s, you know, mid-90s, you're saying exactly. hit them with high-dose methylpred. Exactly. So, for example, I'll give you first example. My mother, back in uh, September 2020, she was treating uh, an autoimmune disorder with high dose glucocorticoids. When it makes worse, because she didn't she didn't have any symptoms, and then suddenly she was presenting a 60 per 65 percent oxygen saturation, with 95 percent of the her lungs affected. So then I told her, by that time we were just discovering six milligrams of dexamethasone. <laughs> I didn't. I did not hospitalize her. I did. A, I, I. I developed. I did a, a home hospital for her because I knew that if I hospitalized her, she would die. So what I did is, okay, mom, if you use the current protocols, we'll die certainly. So we will not go for the protocol. We will look for what is causing. So she, I gave her, and don't, everyone called me crazy. Eighty milligrams of dexamethasone per day for five days. I raised the levels of all the treatments, anti-androgen treatments. I gave her, I gave her high dose ivermectin, nitazoxanide, <laughs> uh, bromexin, noxaparin, uh, uh, <laughs> which is low weight, uh, heparin twice daily. And in one week, she went from 95 to 25 percent of lungs affected. 
And you're saying her blood oxygen level was 65. Exactly. And I, I gave her oxygen, of course. I, I put oxygen into her house for her, so she stayed home. In three days, she didn't need the oxygen anymore. She didn't have post-COVID because she developed a very strong ketokine score, so she developed uh, a, thyroid, a thyroid storm, so she had to undergo uh, radio yodel therapy because mm -hmm. she, she had these complications, of course. She, she appeared with 95% of lungs affected, caused by the use of high-dose glucocorticoids in the beginning, where she could never use. She's a proof of concepts. So that, that's, I lost any friend. We should not be afraid of using high-dose glucocorticoid in the short term. It doesn't matter how much you use, it won't affect your production if you use it for a short term. Do you, do you have a rough um, sketch of markers of data, not necessarily prepared scientifically, but from the people you personally treated in terms of, you know, how many you treated, their outcomes, and what type of underlying conditions they had. Oh, we do. We do, uh, we do have some data that is unpublished. So we have an independent marker, uh, D-dimer, as an independent marker of viral loads on day seven, okay? So we found this correlation, independent from, adjusted for all other variables. So D-dimer, increase of fibrinogen levels, increase of ferritin levels, and CRP, uh, ultra-sensitive uh, C-reactive protein, is not as good for the beginning, but it tells you the level of inflammation you have, so it's quite accurate. Uh, on the case of males, the level of testosterone, the level of reduction, especially if you have it before uh, pre-COVID testosterone level dosed. So the level of reduction tells you the, how pathogenic and how infectious was this virus on you. So there are several ways to check it. Uh, CK levels in case of myositis together. So basically fibrinogen, D-dimer, uh, ESR is a good predictor of recovery. It has a paradoxical increase during the end of the disease. Uh, but all these all together can tell you who's going to progress and who's not going to progress with an accuracy of 90% approximately. So if I see these numbers getting worse, I do modulate my patient's treatment. I increase their lab, their treatments, I increase their levels, the dose of some of their medications, or increase medications. So with these, remember, we lost millions of lives due to lack of therapy, but we did not lose a single life to due to excessive treatments. Wow, that's that's very powerful. The same people who th say COVID is so bad that you know we need to shut down the world, we need to do this. But then when someone actually gets it, it's suddenly not a big deal to the point that if they're at a point where you know they're 100% either going to die or they'll be in an ICU for months and be messed up probably for the rest of their life, they'll say, well, I don't want the Billy Rubin levels to be raised for a half a day or something. Like it, The minimalistic approach makes no sense um, as, as we see, when you actually treat someone in person, you get their blood, you put a stethoscope on the chest, you take x-rays. So, again, the theme we've been pushing this week with Dr. Tyson and others, it's not just a protocol. That's better than nothing, and it will get 80%, 90%. But to get close to 100% is the right doctor at, with the right treatments at the right dose for the right person at the right time and the right symptoms. It's the art of medicine. I'll give you the last word. We'll close up. Well, I think that COVID required for us our uh, ability to be doctors more than ever. And it's exactly when we are being 
prohibited to work as doctors. So it's it's the main reason, I think it's amongst the main reasons why we had so many deaths, is that when we were most required to work as real doctors in an individual basis, seeing each patient's needs for which medications, thinking about the disease, its pathophysiology, practicing medicine and it was supposed to be practiced. It's where we were prohibited as we were threatened and to work as doctors. So this is the result. Six million, almost six million deaths so far, unfortunately. Un- unbelievable. Well, again, folks, this is Dr. Flavio Cotagiani. Um, an amazing study out. But again, it's not just one study. It's not just one drug. It's really the entire art of medicine that's missing, that's not just missing, but being censored. Uh, thank you for what you do. Please come back and inform us when you have more information. Um, I, I fear that this is not the end of it, and we're going to have to get ahead of, get our own gain-of-function research to uh, get ahead of what, what whatever is going to be released. we got to save lives. Um, folks, we're way out of time. Told next week, I'll be back same time, same place. God bless you all, and thank you for listening.